In a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best, best workplaces. workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers Podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. So welcome. Welcome back to the Digital Doers podcast. Um, just a reminder, we're on the oil and gas global network, and it is the largest oil and gas global network of podcasts in the world. Um, if you happen to see Mark LaCour's uh, post on LinkedIn, he uh, is forecasting that we'll hit 3 million downloads uh, later in 2022. So thank you to all of you that join us and, and welcome back. Um, before we get started, I do want to mention that we're grateful to our sponsor, HPE. Um, and in particular, I want you to check out their website at hpe.com and take a look at their new GreenLake platform. A big key fit feature is the ability to manage and configure from a single location the shared services and assets across your entire IT inventory while you're comprehensively tracking consumption to ensure that your investments are being utilized as you intended. So check that out. I'm, I'm really excited today to have someone joining me who uh, is a man after my own heart uh, when it comes to data. Um, in fact, you I can't guarantee this, but if you were to look up the definition or look up data nerd on the internet, you might see a picture of Dr. Adam Ballard. So I'm thrilled to have him. We can talk about data today. Um, so, so Adam, welcome. Well, thank you, uh, Joanne. I, I, it's a little scary, the three million. I thought that this was just going to be a conversation between us, but uh, <laughs> well, I guess it'll be with a few more people. No, well, hopefully they'll just download and listen to it, but uh, they, won't, they won't join us in this conversation. But uh, okay, so tell us a little bit, Adam, about your background and when did you know that you were a real data nerd? Well, that's a good question. I, uh, well, I guess a little bit on my background. So I came from a very small town up in the Northwest, uh, about halfway between Seattle and uh, the Canadian border, Vancouver, small town. And I've always loved math, loved it. In fact, I, I, I took every math course I could get. I remember even in elementary school, and I went to many over the years, uh, I was the one that was always had, I had to sit outside the class in a desk outside the hallway and I was given little workbooks to, to work on, right? Which was like little puzzles and stuff while everyone else, I guess, did long division or, or whatever they were doing. And, and so I just love data and I love solving puzzles. I think if I wasn't an engineer or a mathematician, I'd be a detective because to me, it's just ingrained in me. I love solving problems. And so, you know, I went off to college. I really wasn't planning to go off to college, uh, but, you know, starting my freshman year in high school, I started playing football 
And I found out, you know what? I love this sport. It's fun. It's, uh, it's, it's again, kind of like a puzzle. In fact, I had a coach tell me that. He says, man, you treat this too technical, right? <laughs> Be more aggressive. Quit being so technical. But to me, I wasn't the largest guy. And so um, I needed to use a little more than just my body, I guess. Um, so I went off to college to play football and went to Willamette University. And when they asked me, well, what do you want to major in? Uh, it's a small liberal arts school in Salem, Oregon. Um, I really didn't know. So, but I knew I liked math. So math. And so I did that. Loved it, right? Learning, uh, except for linear algebra. That one I struggled in a little bit, but all the rest of it, awesome. And being a smaller school like they were, you know, the focus, it was very much theoretical mathematics. I mean, I remember, you know, statistical theory where we would take a single data set and over the entire semester, use that data set to say just about everything, you know, from, from up is down to down, right? And uh, it really opened my eyes to, huh, you know, you can manipulate data and make it say whatever you want, which, which is giving me a keen ear or eye for that uh, uh, these days. Um, you know, I remember taking uh, game theory. Oh, that was a fun one, right? I think one of my professors may have had a problem because I swear the entire uh, semester we worked on gambling odds for horse racing. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he used our output for some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but you didn't stop at an undergraduate in mathematics. No, I uh, got to the point where football was over and I was getting ready to graduate and I realized, ah, I'm going to go get a job. I'd been working in the lumber mill the whole time um, and I didn't want to go back. That was a good way to keep me in college. And I realized that all the jobs out there, I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be a CPA. I didn't want to be a math teacher. Um, and so I decided to go to my career counselor and after, uh, introducing myself to her and her telling me we should have met several years earlier, uh, she recommended after some discussion, well, you should go to grad school and go get your master's in, in, uh, chemical engineering based on, you know, that I liked chemistry and physics and loved math. So, uh, so basically I took that path and, um, Thank goodness my math skills are pretty good. I, I aced the uh, GRE on the math and the logic and reasoning and got a, I think it was like a 400 on the verbal, which is classic engineer. As soon as I got those scores back, all of them were, were, were you know, sending me plane tickets to come out. And ultimately, I uh, went to Colorado School of Mines, a uh, nice small town in Golden, Colorado, just outside of Denver. And uh, got my uh, originally was going to get my master's, uh, but loved it so much that I uh, ultimately got my Ph.D. And, uh, you know, and that was a heck of an experience. You know, it was yeah. the first year I had to get the entire undergraduate curriculum down before I right. could even start the graduate right. program. Right. And so did that in about three and a half years. And, um, you know, my, my research was a little bit of laboratory, but, you know, I kind of went back to what I loved, which was the data and the programming. And, and so, um, you know, my doctoral research was essentially it was in fluids, but it was in hydrates. And uh, my target or my goal, right, was to basically develop a new equation of state or redevelop the equation of state for hydrates from the statistical uh, thermodynamics all the way up. And, uh, and so, you know, and then a lot of, you know, and there was a lot of data, I would say, 
that went into that and then went and joined BP after that. Uh, and and did, did a variety of things with BP. Oh, I was all over the place. Yeah. Early, early mentors of mine, uh, when I joined, uh, saw that I loved to learn, saw that I loved to see the bigger picture. And so kind of we mapped out a, a path, a career path that took me all over from, um, from reservoir, uh, a little reservoir engineering, all the way through to facilities, wells, even in the export. Uh, onshore a little bit, offshore quite a bit. Worked on site for a couple of years out in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, worked in the boardroom for four years, uh, advising um, uh, the uh, president, um, you know, and worked in the, the uh, you know, projects phase of things all the way through to production and decommissioning. Yep. And even had a stint there of, of uh, you know, managing the, the performance and planning of, of the business. So. so you bring up the fact that you spent some time kind of at the boardroom level. And when I was looking at your, your CV, I noticed that you talked about that time uh, when you were this close advisor for the president of one of the business units at BP. And you, in there, you said that you, you, you believed a big part of what you did was you helped create what you called right conversations. So I'd like, tell me what you think is a right conversation. And then how did your data analytics kind of enable those conversations? Well, I would say uh, a couple things, Joanne. Um, you know, ha having seen quite a bit of the upstream business in my career at that point, um, it, 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 it basically gave me an eye or a keen eye, I will say, to be able to see issues and to hear what people were saying and really understand. And, and <clears throat> I would say most of the conversations that were occurring in the boardroom um, certainly not in all boardrooms, but I would say many are very specific, right? If it's a conversation about a well, it's going to be a conversation about a well, and it will be driven by the drilling and completions group. Um, or if it's a producing well by the reservoir engineering group or production engineering group. Um, and so, you know, when I, I guess, you know, what I meant or what I mean by the right conversation is I, I'm a firm believer that that uh, seeing an issue or an opportunity from many different angles actually provides more insight and leads to a better dis decision. And so seeing kind of very much one one way of kind of bringing things in and and and, and looking for solutions or decisions from that uh, uh, executive office. Um, didn't necessarily bring about all the potential opportunities or options that were out there. And so, so that's, you know, and, 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 and one thing, uh, you know, the president, you know, one, one of the things that he would, he would tell me is, you know, your job is to make sure that no one, that, that the right inform, the right information and correct information is coming into that room, right? Nothing worse than going through a meeting for an hour and, you know, you find out at the end that, oh, that's actually changed. It's not that. It's something else. Well, um, what did we do for the last hour? I kind of see time as, as too precious to waste. And so by right conversation, you know, I really tried to focus on um, 
the decisions that really needed to be made, right? Executives don't need to need to determine, you know, whether it's a type one uh, inspection finding versus a type two, right? It's what, what they need to be seeing is the bigger picture of all these inspection findings are on this piece of equipment that's also, you know, happens to be the most valuable asset out there. And if they, you know, lead to an integrity incident, uh, basically takes out a third of your revenue source for at least two months, right? Yeah. And so yeah, kind so of bringing in more than just that information. Just the data. Of, yeah. Yeah. It's how it's connected to the business. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, what is it? Why is it significant? Why is, it, why is this important? But it, you also um, strikes me that what you're saying is in addition to the right conversations, it's kind of maybe a little bit like the right questions to be asking as well. Well, it's interesting you say that. That is, you know, everyone has a different technique for trying to bring things out, right, in a room. And that is that is my technique, right? I'm uh, even, even my wife, when I ask her a question sometimes, she says, you already know the answer. So you're just trying to get me to get... <laughs> You know, and, and but 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's if you're not asking the right questions, then 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 you're probably going to get lost. Right. Right. Uh, and you're not necessarily going to make the best decisions. And that was my goal coming into that role is is I want to make sure the best decisions are made and that it's by, you know, completely informed information and okay. data in the room. You know, there was prior to that, I was an engineering manager in that same business unit. And it would just frustrate the heck out of me when I would hear that certain decisions were made. And it was, it was, it was clear to me that that's just the wrong decision, you know, in, in areas that I had the context. Right. And, um, and, and I would say there was, you know, so, so I was, I was, um, I was bent on making sure that I was going to leave it in a different place, or at least during, you know, my time in that office, that uh, hopefully the asset managers, the engineers, and and uh, and and everyone else isn't gonna isn't going to question the decisions. They're going to say, "Yeah, that makes sense." Okay. Uh, okay. So. so, when you said you were an engineering manager, is that when you also had the role as kind of a performance manager, or was that a different role? That was a different role. Okay, so was but it wasn't the technology manager either, or was it? No, that was another role. As well. yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm, I know you served as this close advisor. And, and like you said, it, it was your role was really about being sure that this right and correct information was available during these, uh, these conversations, these right conversations. Yeah. Tell me a little bit also about when you were a performance manager. Um, you know, it, I think you've we've talked before about you know you had some some really good results around reliability. I assume that's either process or equipment reliability. I'm not sure, and then also under uh, cost reductions, and you had some some really good. Um, and you said that transparency was an important part in, in those improved results. Talk a little bit about what you did there, Adam. Okay. 
Well, I, I will will start by saying, and I've seen this in every role, the data is always there, right? We're, we're you know, it, it, you've kind of heard the data rich, information poor. Uh, the data is there, and you know, and, and what I've always tried to do, where what I've found actually creates a difference is actually not just presenting the data, right? I mean, we're dashboarded out. And so just because the data is accessible doesn't mean everyone is looking at the data one and that they understand the connectivity of the data. And so, um, you know, so in every role that I've had, that's kind of been my goal is instead of hoping people connect up, you know, um, two pieces of data, and I'll, I'll give an example here. Um, I'm just going to connect it up and provide that to them, okay, um, to prompt, I, I guess, uh, decisions and prompt action. So in the performance manager role, just a little context. Um, so the accountability of my team was the forecasting and performance management of uh, operating costs, activity schedules, production deferrals, and the management systems. And when I came into that role, what I found was there were essentially four different groups or teams that were actually working these accountability, do, doing um, cost forecasting, cost performance managing on a quarterly, monthly basis, and activity and production. And um, yeah, and so, and then, and then the discussions that were happening with those you know, were typically happening at the asset level or the business unit level, but they were a discussion on cost. And then maybe a week later, a discussion on production, of which production deferrals are, are a piece of that. And then another one on, on uh, the activity sets. And they weren't really joined up conversations. Well, you know, the, the reality is, right, the activity is what drives the cost. And, the, and, it, and it also drives the production deferrals, right? If I'm going to take down a piece of equipment to do maintenance on it, 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 it likely will have a deferral of production. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to change that. And, and, I, and I'll give a little nuance, uh, or not nuance, but I'll give a little maybe a frame to think about because it's what goes on in my head. I always, whenever I come into a situation, I'm looking for the balance, right? So it's, it's, you've got, you know, activity, cost, and production deferrals. And I'm looking for where's the balance to pull the cost down by taking down activity. How am I challenging activity based on its cost or its uh, production deferrals? How much is that activity costing me? And so, you know, in order to have that, you have to have a push and pull. And so the way the conversations were happening was it wasn't in place, right? I'm only talking about cost. I'm only talking about activity. And it was at the, I would say, at the, uh, the level two or level three, right? Inspection costs for the entire asset are this much. Well, not down into the detail of this inspection of that at, you know, during this time. And, and, and so, you know, in terms of challenge, the challenge was, was at too high of a level, right? The, you know, we were going to spend $850 million. Okay, well, you need to take that down by 10%. Or five percent. Okay, you know how do I do that, right? Uh, production, you know, was broadly challenged. Um, you know, we've got too many deferrals. We need to have less. Okay, uh, and then activity. Interestingly enough, was scheduled and fit together like a uh, Tetris block. You know, 
Um, oh, you need to do that activity? Yep, let me fit it in the schedule for you with no thought of how much is that going to cost? What does that look like for my cost profile? And, you know, is it, does it have a deferral associated with it? And so, you know, broadly, without getting into all the details, essentially what we did is we brought all that data together to create that push-pull system to ensure that when we are having a conversation, it was a business conversation, not a cost conversation, not an activity conversation uh, or a production conversation. It, it is looking at all of it, knowing that the activity schedule is what drives all this. And, you know, and then we coupled that with, you know, we did some benchmarking work uh, to tell us what others, where others were in those spaces. So that was, you know, another good push in regard to here's what, you know, this company's doing on their asset. Yep, there's differences between them, but here's where you are. You're this much over. Let's start going through the activity and figuring out, do we really need to do this? Or does your engineering want to do this? Yeah, so it's almost like there was an opportunity to do either the multifunctional, cross-functional, or like a process look so that you could understand the activities. And then when you do this, it's driving your cost this way, or it's affecting your production. And it's getting all that together instead of just focusing on that single function or, or group of activities. No, that's like absolutely that. right. And, yeah. and another way to even think about it, because I've got many ways of thinking about different things, is you know the way it was being done, it was top down. And so, you know, what we did was essentially do a bottoms up. Let's actually take it from the activity sets and, and move up from there. Right. As opposed and, to starting at the results and coming down, let's start at the activity and see how it's driving. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it had huge benefits. I mean, as you saw, it had huge benefits just in, we saw a 10% reduction in, in base operating cost year on year. Uh, we saw the reliability improvement yeah go up by 3%, you know, and I would, I would equate that to other programs that are going on, but also we were doing less activity. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah. leave the equipment alone, weird enough, it keeps running. <laughs> um, so you don't tamper with it sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. So I want to build on something. One of the things that, uh, I said I wanted to do on this podcast, it's called digital doers, but I don't want to just focus on the technology. I, I, I do want to talk about technology and the intersection of technology with the culture. And so you mentioned when you started talking about being this performance manager, um, you said most of the time data's out there somewhere and you've got dashboards out there a lot, but just because people have um, accessibility to the data and even if it's connected, it doesn't mean that people are using it. That feels a bit like a culture thing to me. Yes? No? I, I believe so. I, it, it, it's, I would say it's a cultural thing, and it's, it's probably a mindset thing as well. Okay. And so speaking of mindset, um, you also mentioned that you were, when you were a technology manager at one time, you said that a, a, a big part of your work, you believed, was driving um, a mindset shift. So talk a little bit about that mindset shift. Okay. 
And there's a, a few examples of that that I would say, you know, were, were mindset changes, right? And so the, the way this team worked, just, just as context, is um, BP is a centralized, uh, it's a functional organization and they have a central function. I was in the, the, the digital and technology function, uh, reporting to the head of technology and accountable for, you know, identification testing, uh, uh, scaling and, you know, deploying technology. Okay. And we would work with the business units around the world to actually do that. Um, you know, so, so a couple things when it comes to mindset, right. And, and I think there's a few, it's, it's the mindset and you're going to, what you're going to, what you're going to hear here is, is that balance again, right. And it's the good enough versus perfect balance, right? It's, you know, the reality is no one wants to fail. And, you know, I, I've got an idea. I need to sell that idea in order to get the, my own time or other people's time and or money to actually test that idea, right? Which means I have to be open and, and, and make myself vulnerable that I think this will work and I'd like to test it. And when you get that time or you, and or you get that money, uh, you feel like you need to deliver a successful result. Okay. And so, and, and, and I think that gets in the way, uh, many times in terms of, in, you know, this is in, I would say it's in technology primarily, right? I mean, if I'm, you know, putting together a safety system for an offshore asset, yeah, no, that needs to be perfect. Very different. Right. Yeah. But in a, um, but in a digital technology standpoint, it, it needs to be good enough. Yeah. Right. Because the, the beauty of the digital is you can build on it. And, yeah. and so, you know, so that's one of the, the mindsets that I focused on kind of getting to a point uh, that, that was at the right balance. Right. Yeah. And that's, uh, and the big implication there is around speed of delivering this greater capability. Is that yeah, it's, it, okay. it, it's speed and, and uh, yeah, I, I would say that's the big one, right, is, is really the pace. Mm -hmm. If I don't test it quickly and assess it quickly, then, you know, I, I look at that as I've wasted time. Okay. And, and I, that, that's time I didn't get to look at the next one. All right, you know, so and that's I, one mindset. Yeah, and, and I would say that mindset is in both the staff that were on my team but it's also within the organization uh, broadly, right? Your projects organizations, if you're in oil and gas, um, they don't want new technology, right? Historically, technology is, is equipment-based, right? We need to put in this brand-new compact double-gated valve on my header um, or, you know, new types of flow line uh, heating systems. And so you, you, they work off of a, a TRL, technology readiness level, Piece. And so that was kind of that mindset that I kept getting from our project folks was, well, tell me when is TRL six or so, and then we'll consider putting those analytics in here or utilizing robotics, right? And operations was kind of in a different space, but still on the perfect side, which is, you know, we're not going to add new technology unless it adds zero risk to my, to my system. So prove to me that it adds zero risk, right? Which is a lot of work to do that proof. And I don't even know if it's going to add value yet, right? So there's, you know, that's that's kind of that 
perfect versus good enough. Okay. And I would say the other ones really, or another one is the, the proving there's value versus delivering that value, right? It's easy to get caught up, especially if you don't have experience in the business on the front line of actually delivering value. So it's tough to understand what that is. And so, you know, testing your POCs, it's an absolutely needed thing, right? It's about getting that proof of concept out quick. And then, you know, but, you know, it's that realization, and I would say this often just to make sure that, that my staff understood it is, now that you've proven the values there, I'm holding you to that value, which means every day that value hasn't been captured, we can see it as a loss, right? Just to try and put a little oomph and push into the system. Uh, and so, you know, and, and so that, that, that is that other piece that, you know, it, it, you got to make sure you're actually deploying this stuff and that you're actually getting the value from it. Otherwise, it becomes, um, I would say, you know, a catalog of all the things that could add value versus where you're actually getting value from it. Okay, so, um, so Adam, when you talk about um, this notion of proving value versus actually delivering value, that's strikes me a little bit also as a handoff because many times the proving of value is in a projects group and the delivering value is often in operations or whoever's actually going to deploy that. Um, so that sounds a little bit like a culture thing as well. So it is a little bit more about that, if you will. No, I think it's absolutely culture, right? Yep. It's, it's, oh, I could go on and on on that. So, wait, Joanne, what do you but... think, what do you think is the diff? I, I used to say back in my days in the oil field, I used to say, you know, it's not so much about sharing best practices or sharing better practices. It's real about, really about being willing to adopt them. That's the, the tough thing. Um, what do you think kind of causes that? Is it the risk averse until there's a belief that there's abs that this is going to work 100%? I, I think that's a piece of it, Joanne. I, I think, you know, the third thing I had on here, which actually kind of goes to the, exactly that, which is it's, you know, I'm a big believer, at least for me, that in order that, that I need to understand where something's going and I need to understand it in order to get that value. Okay. So if I don't know how to build and program a robot or an algorithm, then how do I even know what's possible? Right. You know, and, and how do I know if, if those that are building it or programming it are putting too much time or not enough time on it? Um, you know, and what I find is many of these companies have people in these types of roles that, you know, came from operations, but don't understand the technology or the digital side, or a very much digital person that came from, uh, we'll just say Uber, uh, and was doing analytics there and is now doing it for oil and gas company X, but don't understand the business. Well, how do they know it where, you know, the value actually is? And how do they know even how to do that handoff, right? Because you know, that, that handoff is, 
is is as or more important than everything upstream of it. Um, yeah. You know, the in my assessment, in you know whether it's it's digital analytics, um, whether it's uh, or data analytics, or whether it's robotics, or whether it's uh, shoot just remote op, op, remotely operating. Half of it's technology. The other half is is the actual. I, I put it at least as the way of working, right? And you know to expect that that the technology isn't going to disrupt the way of working, um, I think is naive. Okay. To not try and change the way of working because of the capabilities that exist, I think is is naive, and 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 and, and I think that's what gets in the way a lot. Right. And actually Your operations realizing on. value is it's a recognition that it's not just a new tool, but it's a new tool that requires you to do something different. Exactly. And it's I think not- many look at how we do it today and try and replicate that with analytics, robotics, which yeah. is possible. But it's not necessarily where the value is. The value is saying, well, wait a minute. How can I do it now that I have these capabilities? Yeah. So it kind of sounds like it's back to that, that old uh, nemesis, if you will, which is change. That's the other piece I always talk with companies on. It's, yeah. it's the change management as well, right? If you want to do this, you need to fund and prioritize the change management organization or the, you know, to ensure that, that that change gets, mm-hmm. gets actually implemented yeah. because all they're seeing is the way it is now and the way it's going to be. Well, the thing is there's a path in between there yeah. and there's cliffs along that path. And, and a tortuous, right. tortuous path with cliffs and, and being able to respond. Um, and I, you know, I've, in my days, I've been on both sides of improvement efforts, right? There have been times when I've led a project, if you will. And then there have been times when I needed to receive that project into my business unit and adopt it and, and make it happen. Um, and, you know, the adoption <clears throat> takes more than just the training, even, the, even if you get the alignment and the communication, I often believe, you know, there were a lot of good people who were trying to understand what this meant to them. But they needed a bit of hand-holding along the way. It wasn't just a passing the baton and then stopping. You know, it really was trying to help them in their day-to-day work uh, make that. So I... I, I think it's, I, I, I like your three points and it's interesting how there's a lot about integration and change. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a firm believer that if everyone had the same amount of context, we would all agree on what we need to do. So and so what big... you're missing when you're doing that handoff is that context. Yeah. And training typically is tool-based, right? Yeah. Yes. It's not intent based and it's not context based. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the, the easy way to do it and it's the brute force way, and this is not going to get you, you know, at scale is you just need to have the same person that's identifying the technology testing and scaling or, you know, and, and now have them into deployment. Right. And then have them circle back. The reality is 
you're going to run out of people quick and you're not going to be able to scale as fast as you can. And so, you know, that change management program is a huge one. Yep. It's a challenge. And it's like everything else. It would be easy if it weren't for the people. <laughs> so, so is there anything else? Any you, You've given us kind of three of your mindset shifts. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about data and the power and analytics and do you um i noticed you did something with a global ro robotics deployment mm -hmm. how was how the change management there what what worked and maybe didn't work um you know on 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 that you know i think and this was at bp you know, when, when we talk about robotics, we need to get a little more just a little more into the weeds than just robotics, right? Is that is that an automated pipe handler for a drill rig, or is it, you know, just an autonomous robot that's doing everything, turning valves, or or is it a tool, right? Uh, and so that's one thing that I would say we did because it became very clear that when I was speaking robotics to somebody, they were hearing something else. And vice versa, right? And so, um, you know, so, so I think it, 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 it's really important to distinguish. Now, as an example, um, you know, at BP, we, we kind of put it in, in two or three different forms or, or frames, right? One of them we called maintenance, maintenance robots. I can't remember the name exactly, but it was maintenance robots, right? And so the way we talked about those robots, it's another tool in the toolbox. So this is something that, you know, as an example, you know, you could do, you could, you know, maybe it's a drone and I want to go, you know, inspect my flare system, right. right? So that's something that our operators should be able to operate and fly up there to inspect or, or inspect the derrick or something, right? For integrity, right. major integrity. Um, and so, and we focused on that piece. This is where our operators are going to do this. So it was very clear when we did that. We, we, we start pulling out what are the needs, right? Well, I need operators that are trained. Well, why do you need operators? We'll just bring out the vendor. Well, if I bring the vendor out, then there's no savings associated with this, right? Okay. So it, you kind of, you're able to flesh out some of those things of, okay, the technology's here now. How, what are the steps to actually, you know, test it and deploy it and, 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 and the change management piece, right? Ah, there's a whole training program associated with this. You know, and you could start thinking about, well, if I've got five different types of those, that's going to make the training tougher, which makes my expertise weaker. Right. Right. And so that was one type. And I could go on and on. But, you know, the other piece was and I can't remember the name of them, but, but it was basically, you know, more autonomous type of robots. And these, you know, these ones we kind of looked at as the eyes, ears, nose you know, and et, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the context of the facility. Go out, walk the same path, listen to the equipment, look for sheens, look for boats on the horizon, look for these things, smell for gas, um, you know, feel with your IR sensor the temperature of the different pipes and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, casings. Um, and those ones, you know, we're, we're a different one, right? And that was completely different, which was, no, you don't have to control this operation. Um, this, or projects for that matter, um, this one, you know, is, is, is there to, you know, get you information and context on that facility. Then an operator, when they're doing that walk, 
can't necessarily get. Those are the ones that, you know, we, we were working on analytics on top of that data that you could, um, because it was a consistent, uh, consistent uh, data set from day to day, that you could do some just some simple, you know, by difference type of analysis, looking at what's my baseline sound from that, you know, right. piece of machinery. So it's easy to capture then kind of exceptions from that if you get a exactly. good baseline. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And a good operator will be able to do that too. Yeah. Sure. The reality is I don't want the good operator collecting the data. I can get a robot to do that. I want the good operator, you know, uh, in doing the investigation when we've identified that. Yeah, exception. to provide that context, as you've been saying. Yeah. What does this mean? Yeah. Yep. And I think that's, and that's the way we, we talked on those robots, right? Because, you know, I would say what many of the things I would hear from friends uh, at site is, ah, you know, you went to that new role. So now you're going to take our role from, right? right. And it's like, <laughs> absolutely not, you know, that, that <laughs> and, and so it was all about, we're supplementing the operators by not having to get the data. Yeah. But once so. again, it is, about a change in role. How do we change our role so we can get the value from this tool? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, you know, and there's and there's lots if you think about that one. I just want yeah. a deck operator robot, right? right? And and not to turn valves because that has a whole nother complication. Just to do the walk around. The that's surveillance. required by my company. It's required by the regulator in many countries. Right. Um, and so you know, so so you think about the change management of that. I need to change my own processes, and then I gotta you know, uh, you know, change the role of that deck operator and ensure that I'm getting even more value out of that their experience. Uh, I'm gonna need to have a touch point with the regulator. Is the regulator going to allow this, right? Uh, and so on and so on. Yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, Adam. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I really like, I think you were able to provide this context and perspective, you know, from a very senior executive level, all the way down to the operator on the deck, as you mentioned. So I think that's a great perspective that you bring and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Absolutely. Anytime. I I love sharing my own experiences. So again, uh, we're going to sign off here from the Digital Doers podcast on the Oil and Gas Global Network, OGGN. And take a couple of minutes and go to hpe.com. Take a look at their new GreenLake platform because that's where they're bringing the cloud to you wherever your apps and your data live. So until next time, bye-bye. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.